0: It's the hot new buzz: video games. With ninety-five percent or more of the market, we were the video game industry. But then it changed. Sega. 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 It was hard to build a major video game system. None of us really knew if Sega was going to be a success. The challenges we had were the very strong presence of Nintendo. We needed something to compete with Mario. Sonic the Hedgehog. A hedge what? We established a rule that Nintendo was not going to get pushed around. We're at war, guys. we got to win this.
1: It became a kind of spy versus spy.
2: They had these large inflatable balloons like Sonic. He had them deflated. A lot of yelling and screaming at various events. They were furious with us.
0: I did not expect the US Congress to get involved. We sent a message to Sega that we were going to continue to fight. There was a lot at stake. It was unbelievable. You got to be ready to fight. Hey, you.
2: do
1: this good ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages particularly those old enough to remember 16-bit gaming welcome to another Sega guys episode I'm Dan the mega driver and I'm joined by my co-host is James the sega holic how you doing James I'm blowing me thanks very much who's yourself yeah uh, super excited mate, because we've got a very special guest for our listeners today uh, they may know him as the author of the excellent the history of the future but more likely, in the case of our fellow Sega fans, the fantastic console wars book. It's Blake J. Harris. Blake, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: I'm good. Thank you for having me on. You guys are too kind. And as I told you both, <laughs> and your listeners should know, I got my second vaccine shot today. So I'm so expect me to be kind of loopy. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> No, it's, it's
2: absolutely fine, Blake, as, as Dan says, it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um I say we had Tom Kalinski on with Adele Nelson on. So I think you being the author of Console Wars, I think you very perfectly round off that trilogy for us. Um, and just again, thank you so much for, for giving us a bit of your time to to delve into some kind of Sega past, some Console Wars past, a bit of your own kind of gaming past as well. Um so yeah, let let's let's go on with it.
0: Yeah, sounds good. I mean, as your listeners know, Tom and Al are pretty incredible. And just in general, I felt and feel very fortunate that I got to write that book. You know, I didn't know if it was going to, to me as a kid, it was very important, but I didn't know if there was going to be a good business story there. And there was largely because of the characters were so fascinating. So I'm glad that you guys got to speak to Tom and Al already.
1: Oh yeah they they really are just absolutely marvelous and uh yeah i, I mean myself i was a, a little bit starstruck speaking to them both <laughs> well, so was
0: <laughs> i when i when i was interviewing them for the book i was a little starstruck too
1: absolutely amazing i mean before we before we get on to the, the, the thing the first place to start is you can't really undertake a project like console wars without being an avid and passionate gamer so i think going back to your gaming background what what are your earliest gaming memories and how, how did you fall in love with the hobby
0: sure it's a good question so I, I i i was born in 1982 um so for me the my first console was the 8-bit nintendo entertainment system and i remember getting it as a Christmas present for my brother and I. And I remember being very excited about it because I had heard it was like a big deal. But I also remember at the same time, just not even understanding what a video game was. You know, like, (laughs) I guess I I could understand that there was pictures on the box of Duck Hunt and Mario and that it looked like a cartoon. But just this idea of like, you know, pushing buttons and controlling a thing seemed just like, you know, science fiction to me. Um, And so that was what I ended up playing first and I really loved it um and then my brother and i played you know a, a lot of nintendo it was our favorite thing to do after school it was uh, you know a very popular activity amongst our friends and uh, it was a reason to make friends with certain people and then we we had such a great experience with nintendo that naturally in 1991 when the super nintendo was coming out that was the only thing in the world that my brother and I wanted, and so we sort of put together the childhood equivalent of a PowerPoint presentation for my parents of you know <laughs> here's what we want and like you know you don 't need to get us a birthday gift for this year or next year, and blah 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 and And my parents, who were awesome and always like you know if there was something that we really wanted, they always tried to help us get it or help us save money or figure out a way that make it happen. They were totally disinterested in helping my brother and I get a Super Nintendo. Because you know, I guess, like (laughs) a way, a lot of parents felt back then, because the Super Nintendo wasn't backwardly compatible. They felt like they were not being, you know, prioritized as a consumer, or they felt Mm -hmm. like Nintendo was ripping them off in some way. And uh, you know, that's an open-ended debate. I guess is also just for younger people listening who think that that's crazy, which it might be. It, It is worth noting that, like back then, you know, switching. AV cables and all that stuff seemed like a very big undertaking (laughs) as opposed to now where it's just an input switch or it's very easy, but like, but yeah, so my parents would not even consider getting us a super Nintendo. And as like a loophole to that, we were able to get a Sega Genesis. And so that's what we got. And it ended up being my all time favorite console for reasons that I'm sure we'll discuss and Sonic, but you know, ultimately it was that my brother and I mostly enjoyed playing sports games and Sega was pretty much objectively better than nintendo at sports games whereas much of the other quality conversations are up for debate but you know when i spoke to these people at companies like electronic arts that made the games they always wanted to make sure that i played these games on sega because that was the in their minds as the creators the better version of the sports games
2: dan i think that's quite crazy because you and blake actually share pretty similar beginnings then when it comes to sega because then you and your brother she had a master system as well
1: yeah so yeah we we trade I reached back to eight bit but we we cuz the master system was so much bigger over in 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 the uk Blake so um obviously uh then the there's so was, was that the was that NES. a
0: choice did you did you like choose the master system over the NES or that was just somehow what you ended up with
1: it's just uh, it's just what we ended up with um okay. i i started with the commodore 64 and then my brother got a, a master system but um in the in the UK, the the NES had a bit of a, a, a hit and miss launch. It right. really wasn't as big over here. Whereas Sega right. seemed to get on the front foot with the Master System, and it and it flew out of the blocks. So but it's uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that backwards compatibility was so personal to yourself, because um, that's one thing that I, I really liked in, in in the book. In that it that did really seem like a tipping point for a lot of people. It's it's funny yeah. that it's such a it's such a big deal today you see so much so much uh, focus especially from uh, Microsoft and Xbox on on backwards compatibility it's, uh, it's like well, these kids don't know how they, how good they've got it <laughs>
0: <laughs> no but it's a, it's, a, it's a good point too because you know at the time i when i was a kid i just thought like oh that stinks like you know i i can't get what i want Um, And then as I've gotten older and I start to, you know, my favorite stories to read or to watch are like documentaries or nonfiction books that are like business stories. And, you know, I I think there's a perception sometimes that business stories are kind of boring but or that they don't really impact all of us. But in that case, it was really just a business decision that someone made in Kyoto to not include, um, you know, a certain component that would have cost an extra 30-ish dollars and would have made it backwardly compatible and that's an understandable business decision but because of that decision it totally changed my gaming history and I mean in the end it was a blessing in disguise but at the time it didn't feel that way
2: (laughs) so I mean are you still an avid gamer now then Blake do you you play on one of the kind of modern systems from the the mega corporations of of Sony and Microsoft or do do you still have that kind of soft spot for for Nintendo and Sega do you find yourselves you know going
0: back and, and playing any of the retro systems even today much more like the latter so i do tend to i I don't have a ps5 yet i would like to get one but i you know i have bought each console mostly to just play madden or uh you know some of the nba games um but but in general the main console that i use and the one that i would spend when i'm not in production like you know like like Forty-five minutes to two hours, uh, you know, a day or every other day playing is the Nintendo Switch. So it's mostly retro stuff. Uh, I think a big difference for me between some other gamers my age is that I never really got into first-person shooters, and I'm terrible at them. So <laughs> join I always, the club. Yeah. So I felt <laughs> that, you know it's it, uh, it's intimidating or it's I guess just not even very fun because I'm so bad to play a lot of what's popular on the modern consoles. Um, Even though I do enjoy watching other people who are more skilled play. But so for me, you know, whether it's playing, you know, Super Mario 3D Land or just actual Super Mario Brothers 3 or replaying Zelda or I really enjoy Mario 35, you know, stuff with the retro feel, stuff with Sonic or Mario or old Zelda games is, is a lot of what I play.
1: It's a it's a bit of a treasure trove for all that sort of stuff as well. The Switch, I mean, even yeah. the Sega Ages stuff. I know Sega Age, the Sega Ages stuff could have been better, but you've got stuff like Outrun and Virtual Racing, and they're by, for the most part just fantastic ports, aren't they? So I, I don't know if you've tried any of those.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm always impressed. Like it makes me feel old. I mean, it's good, but it's just like it's, <laughs> all this great stuff is like. Such a small file size, and you know, you can fit so much of it. And just I remember when it all just seemed so massive and <laughs> difficult to get a hold of back then. But it's a good thing, I, I'm glad that it's so accessible for many of these uh, really fun games
1: oh i know where, where, where does the time go and yeah technology what <laughs> when street fighter 2 was saying they had a gigantic 24 megabit car now now you can that out a million <laughs> of them on, a, on, a, on a thumb drive
0: yeah, or the <laughs> one that always makes me kind of sad it's like I, I i have um ocd and so i tend to like play games over and over and over and i was playing uh The 8-bit Zelda game, and I was timing myself, and I beat it in like one hour and four minutes. And I was just thinking, like, "Wow! Like, I I literally spent seven months playing this as a kid. (laughs) I was like, I could have just like figured it out and done it (laughs) fast."
1: Yeah, it's crazy when you, see, especially when you see the, the people speed running these games and everything. Though. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, your heart sinks. It's like Sonic Two. People do that in under twenty minutes. Yeah. I think I spent I spent my entire entire year on <laughs> trying to get
2: through it. Yeah, I mean that that is all you see now on on Twitter is like all these kind of anniversary tweaks. and it's like I, I really wish someone would just stop. You know, it's like, oh, it's been 25 years since this and 30 years since that. And, and you remember either opening that up at Christmas or on a birthday, and it's like, oh, come on. Where, where is it going? But I mean, the, the file sizes is crazy. You think we used to pay, you know, 60 quid or, you know, $70, whatever it was that you would used to pay for, for a cartridge. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, and now you see what you're getting, you know, on the likes of Game Pass or, or PS Now. You know, you're getting these 100 gig games, You know, here here we were paying sixty, seventy for, for what is essentially tiny wee games. But at the same time, they they were just so much fun, and I think we spoke about it on here a lot as well. is that you know, well, modern gaming has become very cinematic and very grand and the the scale and the depth, but there's just something special. I think if you're from, from our age group, I mean, you said you were born in 82, I'm 79. I think, Dan, you're similar ages to both be kids, right? So we're all kind of, I'm the oldest one, typical. There we go. Um, but there's something about that era in those games. Um, and I think, as I said, especially to our age group, I think that, that they'll always hold that kind of magical kind of grip on us. You know, they're yeah. just so special.
0: One, one thing I've actually liked, and I've, this is you know it's anecdotal so it might not actually apply to larger audiences but um i i always attributed my affection for sonic 2 and zelda and most of the games i just told you to uh, you know sort of my age and i guess a nostalgia or just my skill level but when I, i i've given some speeches at colleges or at high schools over the past several years and those are kids that obviously weren't even alive when this happened and they seem to also feel a similar sense of warmth with playing 8 bit mid games so i'm like oh, oh that's wow. good because i don't feel that way about you know stuff on the uh, atari 2600 like i feel like <laughs> oh that stuff's really boring but i'm glad that they at least the people that i've talked to seem to there's something about the games like you're saying like from that era that seems to speak to a lot of people i think
1: oh yeah uh, i completely agree and uh, yeah especially in engagements in twitter there is a, a younger demographic that do gravitate to those games so they are absolutely yeah. timeless uh, and i think that's what that's what makes console wars oh part of what makes console wars so fascinating is is just going back in time to that era but i mean going back onto the, the book itself um how did you get onto the concept of console wars uh, when did you decide to do it and what were you what were you doing at the time
0: oh good question so it was many years ago uh it was uh in what was it like 2010, I think. Um and at the at that time in my life, I was uh what I wanted to be was like a, a screenwriter or writer. Um, but what I actually did for money was I had a day job trading commodities at a financial brokerage for Brazilian clients. So I was trading sugar and sof- sugar and coffee and soybean futures. Um, for these Brazilian clients. And I worked with eight other Brazilians. And it was not what I wanted to do, though. The people I worked with were pretty great. So that was good. And uh, and I was writing screenplays on the side with my business partner back then and to this day named Jonah Toulis, who, who I ended up co-directing the Console Wars documentary with. And um, you know, I we had some bad luck in the screenwriting space. And I was kind of going to give up screenwriting and but I knew that I could never give up writing because I love writing. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll just try to write a book. Um, And I guess even before I had that thought, I was just, um, like I said earlier, my favorite books or documentaries to watch are like behind the scenes business stories. So um, my brother got me a Sega Genesis in, I think, 2010. And that got me thinking more about the games of my youth. And it made me just want to want to buy a book like console wars i just assumed that there must be several books like console wars out there these behind the scenes stories about sega or nintendo or the industry and i was shocked to learn that there were so few um and that there was certainly nothing that really dug into sega in the way that i wanted it to so that was a that was how it started and that was kind of a good sign when it's something that you personally want to read and then you end up writing to sort of fill that need or because you assume other people might feel the same way. And uh, at that time in my life, I had never interviewed anybody before. I had no network of people to contact. So it was very challenging at first to get in touch with the interview subjects for the book um, and to figure out how to ask them questions and how to keep track of all that. And um, But I always, uh, I think that Back when I was a kid and also when I was an adult and writing console Wars, I always saw a lot of of Sega in myself. You know, I guess I saw myself as like a bit of an outsider and a scrappy underdog. And I think also with, in that example, I think that Sega sort of bit off more than they could chew but didn't realize it. And they were sort of like uh, optimistically naive and that helped <laughs> yeah, them yeah. because they didn't realize how big of a challenge they were really up for. And, and I think that that helped them and I think that that helped me that... You know, I sort of just took it one day at a time and didn't realize how deep the rabbit hole went. Um, But I just kept going. I didn't necessarily even know what the book was going to be. Um, But I just sort of assumed that I had this curiosity that there was other people like me. And then, as we talked about earlier, just, you know, talking to people like Tom and Al or Ellen Beth Van Buskirk or Shinobu Toyoda or Nintendo like Gail Tilden or Peter Main. Like, I always was so... I, 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 I would sort of feel uh you know like i geek out a little bit and it was just so fascinating everything they were telling me uh and that just kept me really excited and wanting to do the book and it ended up taking 3 years to do all the interviews and the research wow. and write it um and then at some point along that way i was able to sell a book proposal and uh quit my day job and do it full time so like the first 2 years were actually i was still had a day job and then i the last year i got to actually you know become a full-time writer i mean nice that, that
2: that that just makes it even more remarkable whenever you see that it was over 300 interviews that took place for console wars and you're saying the first two years of that you were still
0: working away and your day job <laughs> were conducting all of this so i mean yeah, it, i remember like i would i mean the, my, the, my like i said my colleagues were great and they were like they, kind of, they knew that i didn't want to be there but i also had like i remember just like kind of pretending like I had a client call and just going into the conference room and doing, like, an interview with Al. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking off. Because I also, when I was asking people like Al to do an interview and they would suggest a time, I didn't want to say, like, oh, no, actually, I have a, another job and I'm not a serious writer. I wanted them to think that I was, a you know, very professional. Maybe um, being paranoid. But, yeah, it was really tough. Um, and, and I do think, again, like, the reason that I was able to pull it off is because the people were so fascinating. Like I felt, I felt like indebted to them for them taking the time to speak with me. So I wanted to see it through to the end and do the best possible version. And I, and I really wanted like people like you or people even like my wife, who doesn't really know that much about video games. I wanted them to feel as like as wide eyed and excited, when they read the book as I did when I would talk to these people. Cause like every time I'd have like an hour long called out, like I just left the conversation feeling so inspired and Mm -hmm. blown away and curious for more. And that's what I wanted to convey.
2: So, I mean, whenever you talk about that number um, there, Blake, I mean, was it always the plan? Did you have a cap on how many, did you have like a list of people you went, these are the people that I, I want to kind of have, you know, listed on there. Um, or, or did that number of three hundred. Was it just a case of more doors open for you, and another name got added, and another name name got added? And did you always think you would ever have that level of content? You know, that amount of interviews no, in place to actually go through.
0: I think I think the number is probably closer to like two hundred different people, but I did you know probably like four hundred interviews. But Jeez, no, man. I definitely didn't expect that. I and and what what was a big challenge for me and maybe other people doing this project wouldn't have had that was you know compared to a book like the history of the future where you know you could you could look at the i you could look at the early kickstarter or you could find the org chart for Oculus and I could feel like okay here's the founders I want to talk to here's the VCs and you could put together a list of who you want to talk to when I was looking at this stuff from the early 90s there seemed to be no archival information that that told me like here's the here's the important people so it was really um you know, like I, I, I often, like definitely at the beginning, I didn't even know who I should be trying to speak with. Um, right. And then that became more clear over time. But that was a big challenge was even just, you know, aside from the difficulty of getting the people to speak with me, but even just knowing like who are the people I should be trying to speak with very early on.
1: Well, it's uh, it's absolutely incredible. Um, one thing one thing you said just now um, uh, really, really struck a call cool was when you're saying that all these all these you're going on this journey and you were speaking to all these people and the, the thing that sticks out to me is there's all these revelations that i think most people had no idea go on behind the scenes and there's bits with you know, genuine animosity with with sega and nintendo and um, right. just so many like different anecdotes in there so uh, the journey for you was that that was that was as surprising as you as as we found it then was it surprising that you discovered all these all these stories and all this all this history behind this this rivalry and and sega in the early 90s
0: yeah it was very surprising i i when you know going back to what i said earlier about how originally before deciding to write a book like this i just wanted to read a book like this and when 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 i when i saw that a book like this didn't exist, my initial thought was that, like, oh, this, there must actually, like, it must be a boring story. Like, it must, it's something that seems very fascinating to kids back then, but, like, it must have just been, like, you know, punching a time card and, you know, not that exciting. <laughs> and then when I actually spoke to these people, I realized that that wasn't true at all. Um, that for so many of them, even, you know, now 30 or 20 years, 25 years later at the time, um, like they still look back on these periods as one of the greatest in their life. And you could hear that energy and enthusiasm when they talked to you. And I think that that was really helpful because, you know, as much as the book, um, like, I I, I would hope that the book has a lot of, you know, uh, interesting revelations or, you know, trivia facts that people didn't know that I certainly didn't know. but. Like the, like, a lot of what I found so charming and revelatory was just the, like the emotional revelations, like, you know, just how excited the people were or how, you know, how they felt going through it uh, and what a, what a team effort it was, especially at Sega. And so seeing that there was like this emotional character story and also there's this one that has a lot of little Easter eggs that people and nerds like me would appreciate was just really fun to put together. <laughs>
2: I mean whenever we spoke to Tom as well um he he laughed and he said that um Whenever you you approached him and told him about you yeah. know that this book that he said oh, you've got to be kidding no no one's going to be interested in that and I think he actually repeats that line um, on on the actual documentary itself he actually says that <laughs> on there but he was totally blown away with the fact that anybody would want to hear this stuff and and I think <laughs> they, 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 that, they're that, quite they're very humbled I think by the fact that people still see these these guys as legends I mean they are the legends to us that they, they formed our childhoods.
0: It's so true. I mean, like, obviously, not obviously, but I think uh, it won't surprise people to know that Tom Kalinske is like, you know, one of the great mentors or heroes in my life, especially now after, you know, spending all this time getting to know him and write this book about him. Um, and like, he's, he's right about so many things, obviously going back to, you know, J. Walter Thompson in the sixties with the Flintstone Shubel vitamins to mm-hmm, 50 mm-hmm. years later, he, he's so smart, but I always make fun of him because he was so wrong about the possibility of this book when he thought that there was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, that is like, part of it is what you're saying. It's like, he's very humble. Um, and I think just part of it too, is. There's just been an increased appetite over the past, uh, I don't know, maybe like 10 years for behind the scenes, nonfiction stories, either in books or in documentaries. Um, You know, when I, when I was growing up, one of my favorite shows was the Larry Sanders show, which was like a show about the making of a show. And I always just, I always felt like the making of stuff was very fascinating. Um, And I think that that has become more and more popular. Um, But like, like you said, it's like, these, these were the people that, that, either directly or not orchestrated many of our childhoods and many of our cultural experiences. And I think that yeah. that's what makes it such a compelling story because I, you know, whenever I write anything um, I always think of my grandma specifically with console because I know that she doesn't know anything about consoles and she doesn't care about consoles or Sega or Nintendo. But if you can find a way to make it a, a human story and one about how it impacts a culture and impacts, you know, and inspires people like that is, the kind of story that it was, it was, so I guess early on too, something I, I I felt about the potential for what a console wars type book could be was that it was almost like um, the social network or like Ben Metrick's book, the accident of billionaires about Facebook. I felt like it was that for our generation where Mm -hmm. it was this um, intersection of, you know, interesting personalities, technology, entertainment, um, working together, some drama that comes from that, and so that was why I felt, you know, even confident telling the great Tom Kalinske that maybe he was wrong about the possibilities with this
2: <laughs> I mean, was it a deliberate thing as well, Blake? Because whenever you, you, you kind of you go through the book, and obviously Nintendo's practices that obviously were documented back then, the kind of the monopolistic kind of grip yeah. that they had on the market um, – and Sega and Tom himself is are very much painted as the good guys, the protagonists, the ones coming to to save gaming. Did, did that come about organically, or was it a kind of was that a kind of narrative that you you set out to plan that you know you Sega were the good guys and Nintendo were for, for lack of a better oh, word the bad guys. Question.
0: That's a really good question. Let me let me. I'm trying to think back. Like I get very early on, I remember telling my wife. This was back when I thought like oh maybe there's a book here but I didn't I hadn't really interviewed anyone and I remember thinking that like I like like I like the idea of um, every other chapter would be from a different like you know back and forth like one chapter would be Nintendo perspective the other chapter would be Sega perspective and so um, I guess early on I always wanted it to feel like a good guy and a bad guy I just wanted it to maybe you know switch between each chapter. and then the two things that made it much more of a Sega book were um, part, so, somewhat the lack of access. You know, I was able to speak with many more Sega people. They were much more um, open and honest about their experiences. And then the other thing, too, is I think that, you know, people want people like reading stories about proactive characters who actually, do you know, make differences or do things. And because... Um, and, you know, uh, Nintendo Corporate Limited, and, you know, the, basically Nintendo of Japan, if you were to compare it to Sega, had such power back then. Um, and 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 the people in Nintendo of America, you know, didn't have that autonomy to do the kinds of things that Sega of America did. Um, it, it felt like the story was much more interesting from the Sega perspective. And, and also, you know, objectively, just looking at like the statistical market share yeah Sega was the underdog for most of the period of time, and you yeah know, seeing that underdog story and then I guess also I'm sort of now remembering like you know when when you when you go to sell a book uh, I think a a pretty common question is you know why does this story matter like what like like what, how did that impact history or what is it about the story and if you look at um how we got from the atari or, 8-bit Nintendo days to what video games are now, I think that Sega just played a key role in changing the industry and making it much more of an entertainment industry. And then obviously even just structurally with the formation of the ESRB and 3-show, which Nintendo deserves credit for as well, but they weren't the ones that really uh, were initially pushing for that. So just seeing like how Tom and his team actually like – completely changed the perception of video games and the industry, even if they didn't win the console wars, uh made me made me want to uh focus more and more on those people.
1: It's fantastic. Yeah, um it really comes across and yeah, I can completely see that. Especially when you think uh West where Nintendo are at the beginning of 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 the story where you know, Sega are coming in, and it, you, yeah, you can't really paint Nintendo as the good guys when they're sitting on their 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 throne, which is made of strict licensing agreements, and right. <laughs> um, So, you no know, great stuff. But no, one true. thing, is...
0: and I'll and I will say one thing, and this I'm saying this as like a guy who um, is is more of a Sega fan than a Nintendo fan, and you know, roots for Team Sega, but because of Nintendo's uh, seemingly draconian, very strict policies. Um, I can say that I'm now 38 years old and I've never bought a Nintendo game that wasn't worth the money. And that's not true of Sega. You know, like Nintendo <laughs> quality standards and that, that whole third-party licensing like limitation and the quality control, it's very annoying for their partners. But as a consumer, it has tended to always work out for me. So like in, in the end, I did realize uh, that largely it wasn't so much a good guy and a bad guy story. But that like most good guy, bad guy stories, you know, the bad guy thinks that they're the hero as well and they have their reasons oh, yeah. for doing things. And I think that I sympathize more with the Sega perspective because I think I think it's like early on in the book, I, I make the point that it's really like the Tom's vision for Sega is, is that it gives developers and consumers freedom, whereas Nintendo is all about control. And that's sort of a similar parallel to like, you know, Apple today with their architecture and ecosystem where, you know, everything has to be approved by them. And Sega's thought was that, you know, if someone wants to make more mature content, like then let the market decide. And that led to some really lousy games, but it also led to a lot of creative freedom. And so I guess I, you know, seeing it sort of through that philosophical lens, I think was really helpful to trying to see things from both perspectives.
2: Oh, it's like it's like the line from from Batman: "Either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain," isn't <laughs> <laughs> you know, it?
0: Yeah. So that one just came to mind up. So, no, it's true. you like, you, like, you, like, you wonder, you know, I spend so much time with these people and so much time thinking about this, you, and and I feel like to be effective, I always want to put myself in people's shoes. And if I if I were running Nintendo circa nineteen ninety, it's just really hard to imagine. A way that you can do it that didn't make you look like the villain because you you just were so successful, and <laughs> and like of course any you know like people were going to be upset and be jealous. I think that in the end it was like it, it's like uh it's almost like I I don't I don't know the exact metrics, but it's something like you know most lawsuits with doctors. Um, it's like, if you like your doctor, you're not going to sue your doctor, even if they make a mistake. So there's like something to be said about, Beth, that <laughs> manner. and I think that Nintendo, it wasn't even like what they did. It was just how they did it. And that they were so dismissive. And a lot of people felt very arrogant that even though they were doing these things that had reasons, they were not seemingly sympathetic about it. So, um, you know, and obviously talking to Tom and Al and Ellen, Beth, like there are people who really are great at empathizing with, um their customers and, and, you know, trying to make their partners and, you know, whether it's license, uh, you know, th- whether it's developers, or whether it's retailers, like making them feel like they're part of something.
1: Absolutely, it, it does seem something a little bit cold um, from some of the not, yeah. not everyone that you that that you interviewed in the book, but, but uh, a few of the characters, it does seem very, uh, yeah, less less empathetic uh, to, to your consumers and your and your your developers and partners. So yeah, right. absolutely um one, one thing I picked up on there um was uh you said that there was sega the Sega interviewees were a lot more open, so was there anyone that was difficult to interview was there anyone uh that it was difficult to secure or was it uh, was it quite uh were quite open
0: um definitely early on it was hard to get any interviews and and I don't blame people for you know not agreeing to speak with me because i like I said, I was, you know, at best a failed screenwriter. So, and people's time is valuable. So, asking them to speak with me um, without any, you know, writing credits is uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a big ask. Um, and so, but you know, I, I, I one early platform that was very helpful to me was LinkedIn. Strangely enough, because you know, it, it said what I, I could just search for Sager Nintendo, it said a few hundred names, I could contact all those people, and even though only like 10 or 15% wrote back to me, that was still better than nothing. Um, and then you know, eventually I was introduced to Al Nilsson, and, and after we hit it off, he was very helpful in introducing me to other people, um, and vouching for me. And then after I was introduced to Tom, and that went really well, he was, you know, knowing when people knew that their former boss was, you know, supportive of a project or, or at least, you know, willing to help that made them a lot more helpful. Um, in the end, I think that from like the Sega side, um, I would have loved to speak a bit more with some people from Sega of Japan. They, that was pretty tough. And then Hayo Nakayama, um, I did get to meet and sit down with, and that was really interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, but you know he was a main character, so I would have loved to have more of a continued relationship with him. That that didn't that, that, that didn't happen. Um, the Nintendo side was much more challenging, um, probably for two reasons. Is one just you know the people that work there feel more of a devotion to Nintendo and in general are more you know tight lipped or more protective. And then also, I guess, even like like the people from Nintendo don't look back at the 16-bit era as a, as a, as a period that they're particularly proud of. So they thought that they mm-hmm. were going to be a villain. Um, and then the other thing too is that I think that, I don't think there was a single person who had worked at Sega that I spoke to for the book that still had any uh, like corporate affiliation with Sega. They all had different, they all worked for different companies. But on the Nintendo side, Uh, A a good amount of people still worked for Nintendo or in the case of like Howard Lincoln, he was the CEO of the Seattle Mariners, which of course, you know, Nintendo owned as, you know, it's talked about in console wars. So there needed to be permissions from the company and there was a, you know, a whole bureaucratic process. So, so that ended up being a much more difficult process to secure those interviews. At the end of that, I was able to speak with, uh, just about everyone I wanted, except for Minara uh, Arakawa, um, who was clearly a very important part of the story as the president of Nintendo of America. So he's sort of like, he was like the white whale that I never got. Howard Lincoln was the other one, though uh, fortunately Nintendo Nintendo corporate communications and you know Nintendo of America ended up being very helpful. And in particular, Cynthia Gordon over there, she came out to meet me in New York. I told her what I envisioned with the book. Um and why I was interested in hearing Nintendo's side of the story because I didn't think that they were just you know pure villains like maybe people like Al would tell me, um <laughs> and uh, and I ended up you know like uh, Jonah my co director and I got to spend the day with Howard Lincoln at Safeco Field doing an interview for the documentary and he he ended up being like really uh really helpful uh he he was very open um and and he continued to stay in touch with me and was always very complimentary. Um, so I think that it's another thing too, where in retrospect, um, as much as i I was impatient and really wanted things to move fast and to be able to quit my job and do this full time, it did end up being probably a very good thing that it took three years because it gave me a lot of time to develop those relationships and earn the trust of the subjects on both sides. And then eventually get to speak with Howard Lincoln and Don James and Perrin Kaplan. And even if it was. You know, later in the game, and I wish it had happened earlier. I'm just, ha- I'm just happy that it happened at all.
2: So I mean, were you surprised whenever, obviously, the, the book came out and the reception that it got from readers and the games industry? You know, you've got all this amazing information collated there. You've you've put your heart and soul into this project, um, brought out the book that you want to read that you've wanted to make, and then obviously it's in the hands of of, of the critics. So I mean, what? How did how did that reaction to the book actually? Were you taken aback? Were you really surprised at the the success that it got?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you like what it's been out for uh 7 years. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, 7 yeah. years
0: next month. And it still feels surreal to me cuz I, I still <laughs> like associate so much of my adulthood with working in that job at the financial brokerage and just dreaming about being a writer and feeling like that that was just a dream that was never going to happen or that felt so far away or that I, you know, I had insecurities and self-doubts that I wasn't talented enough to do it. And so the fact that I got to, you know, do it with a story that was so personally meaningful to me and that I got to forge these friendships with people largely at Sega, but even, you know, I'm still very close with Gail Tilden and Nintendo and other people. Like that these are people that are still in my life after all this time. It was incredible. Um, and and you know, as much as I was very confident that this I felt confident this was a story that people would like, there, you know, Tom Kalinske didn't necessarily feel that way and a lot of people didn't feel that yeah. way like you know, <laughs> it wasn't wasn't certain at all and i i i will never forget that that you know i was very fortunate in throughout the process to um you know make some connections on the film side and seth rogan and evan goldberg wrote the forward to the book and they were at that time adapting the book into a feature film which is now going to be a tv show and they did the document and they were producing a documentary that i directed with my friend jonah who i mentioned earlier and so there was a lot of momentum but i remember that even with all of those people who were much more famous than me who was nobody like with seth rogan and evan goldberg and scott rudin was also a producer and he's done some very popular movies though and if anyone reading the trades in the past couple weeks he's also done a lot of uh unsavory things but that, but but basically I just remember all these famous people were you know were involved with my project that I had wanted to do in some way and when the book went out to publishers to see if they would be interested in buying it uh 22 of the 25 publishers passed on the book largely because <laughs> they felt largely because they said oh uh, you know nobody reads books about video games or gamers don't mm-hmm. read and I felt like that was just not True. I mean, almost all the gamers I know are intelligent, curious people, and I'm glad that the book, that the success of the Console Wars book, has helped disprove that, and also I would imagine make it easier for the next person who has had a similar, you know, dream like me to to write a video game book.
1: Fantastic. I mean, Console Wars is even more than the book now, as as you were just saying. Um, So we. James and I have both also watched the, uh, the the documentary. It was over on Sky Television here in the UK. Um, it's always challenging to turn a, a book as 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 comprehensive and far-reaching as Console Wars into a, an hour-long feature. Um, so you were involved in that. Were you,
0: were you overall were you happy with how it how it all turned out? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll say I'll say right off the bat that that was the biggest challenge. Uh, so I I was a co-director on that film with with Jonah Atulis who I've mentioned a few times. Um, so whatever ends it up on screen is totally my, you know, our decision together. So I, I can't, it's not the kind of thing where I could say, Oh, they messed up this and did that. Cause the they is me, you know, I, I had the final decision to make, but I will say that the biggest challenge the whole time was just how to tell the story in 90 minutes, as opposed to 500 plus pages, you know, yeah. but, like even just taking something like Sonic, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, the character, the first game, which in the book is just this like, you know, sometimes mentioned, like slowly, you know, gradually revealed thing throughout the first hundred pages of the book in a documentary. It's just uh you can't do that for if it for a documentary at length. You know, it's almost like there's a five minute section about creating Sonic, and I'm very proud of that five minute section, but it doesn't you know, compared to me of like, you know, planting the seeds early on or, you know, all the ups and downs. Um, but I, you know, there was, with, with the book, I really wanted to, uh, you know, not rely on nostalgia. I really wanted to make it about these characters and make it relatable to anybody because there was a lot of people, younger people who have never seen the commercials who don't really know what, like the, the trade shows were like, but with the documentary, we were able to get all that great footage that I think instantly transports people to a different time and place. And so there was, while there were some downsides to the storytelling possibilities with the documentary, there was also a lot of things that I could do with the documentary that I couldn't do with the book and that I really enjoyed doing. And, and I guess also, like, it was just important to me that, um, as you know, I I'm pretty uh, confident of my abilities as a writer. Um, But, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of my job is to step out of the way and let the characters shine themselves like Al or Tom. And, 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 and as much as it's, you know, good for it to be in my own words of even just, you know, picking and choosing which of their quotes to use um, it's awesome to just hear it in their own voice. You know, that's something that you can never completely uh, translate into a book, but you know, when you hear Tom's voice or Al's voice or, Ellen Beth's voice or Shinobu's voice. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's very personal. Like my, my partner, Joan and I, we often talked about how we wanted the the film to feel like a campfire story with, you know, all these people taking different turns, hmm. and just hearing it from their, their point of view. And I think that we felt like we felt very much like we accomplished that and we were proud of how we did that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with and very proud of how that turned out. Um, and, and there's no, and at this point in time there, you know, there's nothing I would go back and change other than again, like, I wish maybe that it was like a series so that there was more time for us to play with it. But, <laughs> yeah. but with the time we had, I, I was glad. And I also, I do think that one thing that changed between the time I wrote the book and the time that we did the documentary or finished the documentary was I was, I was more conscious of um The fact that the good guy, bad guy narrative with Sega as the hero, uh, while accurate in many ways, was also how the people from Sega saw it and not how the people from Nintendo saw it. So I wanted to at least try to be more deliberate in giving people the opportunity to see how Nintendo saw things and also just remind people that, you know, when there's a good guy and a bad guy narrative, it's usually... Like, you know, the, the good guy is trying to tell you that they're the good guy. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, nobody was killing babies here, that both companies were making things that we all loved. Um, and so just seeing that, you know, that five years earlier or eight years earlier, Nintendo was kind of like their own David and the David and Goliath story. I thought that that was important to hammer home.
2: Yeah, because one of the things as well, Blake, that I actually love, and I think it's, it's so brilliantly depicted in the, the actual documentary, is, is the artwork, some of the artwork sections that are on there. I mean, my, my yeah. favourite one, uh, and we got a good laugh with Tom about this whenever we jokingly says, you know, so you didn't really go to Japan, you know, in your, your Hawaiian <laughs> shirt and your your, your your trunks, did you? Um, and he, he kind of joked, you know, clearly it was very more formal than that, but, you know, is there any little, little kind of? I mean, who, who wasn't done the artwork for it? I mean, is there any kind of particular bits that you, whenever you watched yeah, for the I'm first time, you, you, you went, no, that, that's brilliant. You know, just the, the comedy value alone in some of those moments are just absolutely fantastic.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, like, the two, well, because I definitely want to give credit to them. It, it was a graphic design firm called Mind Bomb, a small shop. Um, and they were incredible. I, Jonah and I used to uh, like often say to each other that the two best parts of the film were the original music score by Jeff Beal, the composer and the graphics. And that we were just so lucky that people were going to like associate our directing with their work. Cause it was such, mm-hmm. it was just so impressive. Um, and, and particularly in the case of like Mindbomb, um, like, for example, with this, the, the scene that you're talking about, which is early on with Tom when he's on the beach and he ends up going to Japan with Nakayama, and, and in the animation, you know, the sort of uh, video game graphic. Graphic novel esque animation. He, yep. he he's on the plane without his shirt, which is <laughs> perfect. Like like when Jonah Amazing. and I scripted it out for Mind Bomb for the first draft, we we didn't have in there that he would be without a shirt. That was like just a fun idea that they had, and and they often had ideas like that. Um, and we most of them we went with. But just you know, it's it's so great working with a partner that you know is able to carry out your vision, but also add their vision to it, and like and seeing it mesh together. And I think that was that that scene in particular was very important early on because the tone of the film was gonna be really tough because um you know on the one hand it is a big billion dollar corporate war, but on the other hand, it's a war about video games and like toys. It's not a war about life and death. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> trying to capture like that tongue in cheek or you know, basically capture the fact that it was serious. But it was also silly, but also not making, you know, not making light of the fact that these were people who like went to work and took their job seriously. Um, in the book, I felt like I was able to set that tone early on just with the dialogue when reminding you, like, this is how these people talk to each other. This is, these are humans. These are like three dimensional characters um, in the documentary. You don't really have that. But so the animation was very critical and Mind Bomb was so great at helping us capture that
1: wonderful yeah absolutely loved that, all that sort of stuff yeah and it it's great that you say that it's it's capturing you know the serious but tongue seriousness but tongue-in-cheek because i think yeah. it's it's not that much later that you see uh tom as sort of a streets of rage looking character trolling through the, the sega offices and his life bar going down it's just wonderful <laughs> stuff
0: <laughs> How I, I is that, watch- by the way like it's like you know like I, I've been writing fiction before all this but console wars totally turned me on to nonfiction all the time because truth you know is stranger than fiction yeah absolutely so we had Tom and Paul Rio the executive vice president and Shinobu all living in this comfort inn and then we got uh, was that and Shinobu still lives in that same comfort inn 28 years later and we filmed him there it's like well, like if, if I had written that in the script you would have said oh that's a little too pussy like that would never happen but in in real life, it
2: happens. The, the the bit on the beach as well. Whenever um, Nakayama approaches Tom, and uh, you see Tom and Nakayama from behind in the clouds, that the genesis yeah. appears in the clouds and it goes, "It's your destiny." Oh <laughs> my like, god, I love that. It's so good.
1: <laughs> oh, it's pretty. I, I mean, I actually watched it with my with my wife and my older son, and they loved it as well i'm oh, so glad to hear that yeah it's fantastic so I, I i think it's i think it's a brilliant companion to the book uh but also something for for someone who might you know but like my wife and son my wife definitely won't pick up the book but my son may do in the future but for people that may not pick up the book it's brilliant it's brilliant for them uh so it, it, yeah. yeah it's fantastically well done so. i mean
0: it, it kind of goes back to something i said earlier just to like like, I, my, look, my life has been changed by writing console wars and directing console wars, and so I'm I feel incredibly fortunate and indebted to people like Tom and Al. And I felt early on that because they had this great story that they had never shared before, and that people were maybe not as interested as they should be. Like, I feel like I got to be the like ambassador for their story, and that it's my responsibility to, you know, talk to talk about it and get more people interested in it. So whether that is by interesting them in the story through a book or through a documentary um you know I just want you know, whether it's maybe trading cards one day whatever i just I just want more people to know how amazing what they did was and how amazing and inspiring they are and so I love doing that and i and I think also it was i think it would be hard to do the documentary which leaves out so many details due to time if I didn't know that there was a book like i I like that there's you know that that if your wife and kids are watching it and they're thinking well that happened so fast like what really happened there's a way that they can at least get that information so oh, I, yeah, I very much i'm you know happy that both exist as a complement to one another
1: they really do and you've also and i think you mentioned earlier you've got the uh dramatization coming uh with seth rogan isn't it um yes. can you give us a, some more information on that um when when can we expect it and how involved
0: are you um i I don't have that much information, unfortunately, to share. Um, like, uh, it, it, it's, I guess it's sort of, uh, there's, it, there's nothing to disclose at this point in time, uh, which I, which I don't like cause I always prefer to be very open about things, but, uh, <laughs> but things are moving along well. Uh, COVID definitely, uh, you know, slowed things down
2: yeah, a
0: course. bit, but, uh, it's, you know, we're clearly working with very good partners. And I, I also want to give a shout out to Seth and Evan, um, particularly with the documentary, because we started working on it together in 2012, which is not, it was, which was eight years before it ended up coming out. And um, there was a lot of starts and stops to the project. And it would have been very easy for them to just say like, oh, it's not worth this headache. And it's not like, you know, uh, I, I was anyone special, but they, needed to owe a favor to or anything. So the fact that they really just cared muff about the subject matter and wanted to see it through to the end after eight years, I think that maybe a lot of people wouldn't necessarily realize that they were so committed and they were so passionate about the subject matter.
1: That's wonderful. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, it's just another way to enjoy the story. So yeah, yeah. can't wait to uh, enjoy that. So Console Wars really ends with the beginning of Sega's fall from grace, you know, it's, it's as the Sega Saturn struggles against, against the emergent PlayStation. Yep. Was there ever a point when you consider the console wars too, covering the next generation?
0: Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, it was very hard emotionally for me to end the book. I spent a lot of years on it. I still loved all the characters. I still loved the companies. So, you know, making the book not infinity pages and, you know, just ever growing was tough. Um, it did. I, I, I felt like it made sense though, with to have the book start with Tom and to end with Tom. So ending the book there made sense. And I, and it did also feel like there was a bit of a happy ending for the characters, even if not so much for Sega and the Sega that we all loved. Um, and then I was always very curious to learn more. Um, but I guess the two reasons I have not really, pursued it or I'm um, probably not going to are just that like it's it's kind of sad. It was already really hard and sad to write the final like you know twenty five percent of the book just as a Sega fan because I, I liked writing yeah. about when Sega was doing well. And those next five years are not very pretty for Sega. No you're gonna um, you have to tell us. <laughs> and uh yeah and, and like uh and then the other thing too is you know i've written two books i'm working on a third book now about uh the comedian and writer larry david and you know i invest a lot of time into these things and 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 therefore i end up spending a lot of time with these people and thinking about these people and i don't you know and and so it's important to me that the that the main characters in the book are people that i really admire and feel inspired by and so i have yet to I've not searched for it, but I have yet to really like, you know, I, like it's as much about the characters for me as about the story. And so not knowing a character or characters that would be in like a sequel um, makes it much harder for me to feel like a desire to want to continue the story in that regard. But I would certainly love to read something like a console wars too. If anyone were to write it, I also like, like I, I'm not sure how many people know or realize it, but like for me, back to when I said I wanted to read a book like Council Wars about Sega, part of that was inspired because I did find a book called Game Over by David Sheff, which is uh, a behind the scenes book. It's a little more encyclopedic, but it's it's a behind the scenes book about Nintendo and Nintendo's rise in the 1980s. And in a lot of ways, I always viewed my book as a bit of a sequel to that because his book ends Hmm. in the early nineties with Sega coming on the scene and, you know, he talks about there's this thing called you know the World Wide Web and you know multimedia and who knows what the future brings and I felt like things were about to get really exciting, so maybe there's somebody out there who you know feels that way about console wars that they're they're excited and want to you know read or write what happens next. <laughs> as,
2: as grim as it was for for yeah. Sega fans especially, um, but Blake to to finish off um, here at the Sega guys we have a segment or a series of shows called My Favourite Sega, where members of the community and fellow content creators share with us their favourite Sega music, Sega game and Sega console. So you've answered the last part with with the Genesis, um, but it would be remiss of us not to ask you for your choices. So could you, in a a condensed form, um, tell us what your your favourite Sega game, console and music is?
0: Sure. So my favourite... All-time console, and especially my favorite Sega console, is the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive, the 16-bit system. Um, my favorite game is is kind of a tie, so I'll split it up between the music and the game. Uh, I'll say Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 um, is my favorite Sega game and Great choice. <laughs> my favorite music is probably my other favorite sega game uh nhl 94 which is a lot of organ music and different team music oh, but right, man exactly. I, I love that game and i and, and the soundtrack is you know ingrained in my mind forever uh and puts a smile on my face whenever i hear it
1: absolutely yeah. amazing well, Blake, uh, that we've come to the end of our questions uh, but it's been an absolute privilege to have you on uh, and discuss uh, console wars, Sega games, and everything else with you. It's been a real privilege, so thank you very much.
0: Oh, thank you for having me, and uh, I'd be happy to come back if you want me to do so after the series of inevitably comes out. And, and thanks also for you know interviewing Tom and Al. I always, I always prefer that people talk to them than me because they they're the ones who lived it. But so I'm happy to you know arrive after them and and you know pat them on the back and
2: make sure that people know how awesome <laughs> they are no as i said at the start of the show blake you know it's you've you've perfectly rounded off what what we refer to as the as console wars trilogy um you know you've mentioned it so many times in the last hour you know tom tom and al and they, they may well listen to this i know they kind of they, they were listening to each other's episodes that we did with them and you know they were as we said, they were such humble guys, really friendly, really approachable. And that thing that you mentioned there about, you know, you, you reaching out to them and not having any kind of clout, but you, you were like a, like a writer. We we're just two guys in in the UK doing a podcast because we love Sega. And and these guys, and even yourself, you know, I dropped you that email and, and I crossed everything that you would, you would get back to me. And, and you did. And, that I think that, that whole thing about that, that Sega community, that retro gaming community, um, you embraced it and you've given us your time. And I really can't thank you enough. I can't believe an hour's flown by already. I feel like I could literally sit and talk to you all night. I really could. Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: Well, if you're ever in New York. But thank you. And I'll also just give credit to them. Like I, I definitely, in a lot of ways... Console Wars, the book, and even the documentary—it's just like a business case study. And and you know the way that Tom and Al do business is very friendly, and in my opinion, like very customer centric and very open minded. So when I when they were kind to me when i had no credits or when they cared about customers who maybe didn't have as much money to spend on games as others like they instilled those values in me about like you know if someone shares your passion it doesn't matter how big their publication is or you know what their audience is it's just about connecting with them and sharing that bond and I, that that totally rang true with me and makes me eager to speak with people like you um i don't know maybe there's a million people listening or maybe it's just uh you know your wife but Either way, like it's just been fun to talk to you, and I am glad that you are helping spread the gospel of so Sega.
1: Go. Uh, th- thank you. It's, 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 it's yeah, it's, a, it's a passion project what we do. Um, we've got, yeah. we've got, we've got a few listens, but it's, it's, it's an absolute privilege to uh, to have you on. And yeah, as I say, share the gospel of S- Sega, and for and really for anyone that hasn't um, experienced your work, just to urge them to go and do it because, uh, yeah. I love, love the books and love the documentary, and I uh, can't wait for for that your Larry David book or, or the uh, concert wars dramatization. So, uh, brilliant things still to come.
0: Thanks, guys. Have a thank great you evening. So
1: much Blake
2: Okay, so you can catch us on Twitter at the Sega guys. You can get Dan at swooper underscore d, and you can get myself at the Sega Until next time, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and we'll catch you later on. Bye bye. Goodbye sports strategy you can't do this on
0: nintendo genesis does 16-bit sports moves you can't do this on the nintendo genesis. Does. Genesis. Does. Genesis. Does. Genesis. Does. genesis does
1: 16-bit sports action you can't do this on the nintendo genesis does what nintendo the 16-bit genesis system by sega genesis does it all